So he read Acts 20, 36 through 21, 14. And that's the completion of Paul spending time with the Ephesian elders and leaving to go to Jerusalem as he had planned to do for some time. So two chapters before in Acts 19.21 we read, Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And earlier in his sermon to the Ephesian elders, earlier in chapter 20, 22 and 23 we read, And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And so we read that as he continues to go from city to city, he continues to receive the same warnings. Spirit testifies that he is going to face difficult times in Jerusalem. But as we saw, lots of people oppose him in his decision. They don't want him to go to Jerusalem. Now, why don't they want him to go to Jerusalem? Kids, what do you think? Why don't the people want Paul to go to Jerusalem? Because they don't want him to die. And why don't they want him to die? Why don't they want him to die? What do you think, Gwen? You don't know? Yeah. Because they love him. That's it. They love him. Paul has been so close to dying so many times. He'll face more close calls before he does actually die. The people love him. You see it in the Ephesian elders. They were grieving when he said that he would not see them again that they would not see his face again. They were accompanying him to the ship. This is not somebody that, good riddance, glad he finally left, right? No, they, they walked out to the ship with him. And they had actually walked to meet with him in the first place. And it says, actually, they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul, repeatedly kissing him. They loved him, didn't they? You can't really read it without seeing how much they loved him. So the reason that they wanted him to stay away from Jerusalem is because they did not want Paul to die. They did not want him to suffer because that would make them suffer. Because when people we love suffer, it makes us suffer, doesn't it? Even you children may have seen this. in yourself. Maybe you love one of your brothers and sisters and you see them being disciplined and it hurts you. 
because they're suffering, you suffer. If you love them, you'll feel it too. Not on your backside, right here, in your heart, in your stomach, I would say. That's where we feel pain, that's where we feel sorrow, isn't it? When people that we love suffer, we feel it too. And so, they love Paul, they don't want him to suffer, because they don't want to suffer. Now, that's not, that makes it kind of sound selfish, you know, like, <laughs> no, we don't want to suffer. But I just want you to see, that's what love means. That's what love causes. It's not simply this sort of external thing about Paul. They're grieving because they also love him. They also will suffer as he suffers. And so they're opposing him in his decision. Even prophets are telling him not to go to Jerusalem. So what does Paul do? He goes to Jerusalem. What's wrong with the guy? Well, what we see this morning is the necessity of walking by faith, both as individuals and as a church, as we seek the will of the Lord. Look at verse 4. In chapter 21, and you see that after looking up the disciples, they're staying there for a week, and it says the disciples kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. They know what's going to happen. Some of them are prophets, some of them are not. But they realize the danger that Paul is in if he goes to Jerusalem, don't they? They're just, it, it doesn't really take a prophet to know that Jerusalem's going to be a dangerous place for Paul. The Jews have been trying to get him. That's the center of the Jews, their political power, right? The thing is, if you go back to 20, 22 and 23, which I already read to you, we know that God has already warned Paul. Every single person who comes to him is like, now listen, Paul, I want to talk to you for a minute. See, Jerusalem, probably not the safest place for you right now. We've heard word that you know, they kind of have it in for you. So, I've got some advice for you. I think you should skip Jerusalem and just go to Rome. You said you're going to Rome eventually, right? Yeah, just, just straight to Rome. That's, that's what I think you should do. And he's traveling, right? So every place he gets, new person takes him to the side. You know, hey, Paul, I got a word for you. A word of, word of advice, a word of counsel, a word of wisdom, a word from the Spirit sometimes, right? Paul's going, oh no, not again. <laughs> Every city that I come to, somebody's telling me, don't go to Jerusalem. God has already warned him. He's warned him about the trials and persecution he's about to face. 
And he warns him again and again in every city that he travels through. It says that the Holy Spirit testified to him. We don't know how this happened in those previous cities, but we began to see how it played out in the next few cities as we read, right? In Ephesus, they're mourning and grieving about not seeing Paul again. In Tyre, they kept telling Paul by the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. They had been warned by the Spirit what would happen if he went to Jerusalem and they wanted to prevent it. Then in Caesarea, Paul is warned about what is coming through explicit prophecy by Agabus. Agabus had prophesied about a coming famine much earlier in the book of Acts. This was a man who had already demonstrated God's truthful speaking through him, right? And Agabus informs everybody in Caesarea that Paul is going to be bound by the Jews and delivered to the Gentiles. Oh no. Not sure which is worse. Both. Both is worse. It's at this point in the story that everybody, including Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts through the Holy Spirit, everybody, including Luke, began begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. They loved him. And not only did they love him, but if you want to just be practical about it, the church could really use Paul. He had been used mightily by God for years. He was effective in ministry. And he had been protected from losing his life multiple times by the people of God, by the church coming together and, and saying, all right, Paul, here's what we're going to do. We're going to save you from the Jews. Or we're going to save you from the rioting crowd. No, you can't go in holding him back. No, you can't go in there. Are you crazy? They had experience the churches did, of recognizing that it was good and important for Paul to be alive doing the work of God and they didn't want him to die now any more than they did before. They'd saved him before, they'd save him again. Right? That's what they thought. But it wasn't God's will, was it? We ended with verse 14. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Think about being one of Paul's friends, being one of his traveling companions, being one of the members of the churches that he had planted. Think about being there. Don't go to Jerusalem. Men, women, Children, all begging him. People that he loved. People that he had served. People who looked to him for leadership. Paul is intent on going. And he isn't going against God's will in that decision. Why did all the cities, all the churches, 
He kept visiting on his way to Jerusalem. Keep telling him, hey, God has revealed that you're going to suffer if you go to Jerusalem. Was it for Paul's sake? I don't think so. Remember, Paul already knew. I think it was for all of the church's sakes, all the people, so that everybody would knew and everybody would know, and nobody would be shocked, scared, have their faith shaken. He travels and travels and travels, and the word comes to every place. Paul's going to suffer in Jerusalem. Paul's going to suffer in Jerusalem. Paul's going to suffer in Jerusalem. Every place he leaves, he tells them, no, I am going to Jerusalem, even though they say don't go. So every time he leaves a city, that city and the believers there know what's coming, don't they? So why did God keep giving warnings to Paul? So that everybody else would know. Paul knew. Yeah, sometimes we need to be told more than once, right? But Paul knew. It was everybody else that didn't know. And Paul wasn't going to tell them. I mean, look what happened in Ephesus. He told them he wasn't going to see them again, and they're bawling and crying on the beach. Forget that. Paul's intent on going. The warning is real, but it is just as much to prepare the churches for what is going to come as it is for Paul. Prophecy plays a part in this matter. We've got this little happenstance mention of the four virgin daughters of Philip the Evangelist who are called prophetesses, although it doesn't say what, if anything, they said at this time. And then you have Agabus the prophet. Prophet can refer to different things, but in this case, it's clear that this specific prophecy is foretelling the future. It's a foretelling. Just like Agabus foretold the coming famine, Agabus is foretelling what will happen in Jerusalem. Sometimes we see the New Testament use the word prophecy to refer to primarily preaching, the telling of the word of the Lord to the people. But in this case, this is prophecy as we more generally think of it, which is not just truth proclaiming, but future truth proclaiming. And the prophecy is what will happen. He will be bound, and it's not going to be nice. God uses prophecies in different ways, and this is a a good place to kind of tease that out a little bit. Um, Obviously, If he doesn't go to Jerusalem, he doesn't get bound in Jerusalem, right? And so this prophecy could be a warning from the Lord not to go to Jerusalem. And then if he doesn't go, it doesn't happen. We see this kind of thing with prophets in the Old Testament 
with answers from the Lord, messages from God about the future. One example is in 1 Samuel 23. King David is being chased by Saul during his time of hiding from Saul. And he's in a city and he goes and inquires of the Lord and he asks, Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Cala, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Cala, he gave up the pursuit. God wasn't wrong. The men of Cala never gave David up, right? Why? Because David took action on the knowledge that they would. He left the city to prevent it. Paul could have done the same thing here. It's not like these prophecies that are given are these inevitabilities, right? We see see prophecies that are inevitabilities in God's word at various times, but even some of the ones that seem inevitable. Think of Jonah going to Nineveh. How many days until God destroys this city? Not very many. Sounds inevitable, doesn't it? And what a wicked city. It's inevitable. But no, they repent. And then God doesn't destroy the city. How marvelous is that? That God... Here's our prayers. It's not inevitable that Paul has to go to Jerusalem. It's not inevitable that he can't go to Jerusalem either, is it? It's clear they're begging him because they know he's got a choice. They know what will happen if he goes. Nobody's told what will happen if he doesn't go. Right? But they know what's going to happen if he goes, and they don't want him to go. The choice is his. The prophecy is contingent. It's contingent on Paul going to Jerusalem. He goes. It seemed to everybody that it was better for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Since, obviously, if he didn't go, those bad things wouldn't happen. But Paul was certain that he was supposed to go. And so what we see from Paul here is he's showing us what it looks like to obey by faith even when other people disagree with our decisions. There is no doubt that people disagree with Paul's decision to go to Jerusalem, is there? They disagree. They think it's a bad idea. They give him counsel. They beg him. They plead. Don't go. But Paul was certain that he was supposed to go. It's a difficult thing to go to Jerusalem when everybody's begging you not to, isn't it? It's a difficult thing to go to Jerusalem knowing that you will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles by the Jews. It's a difficult thing to go knowing that bonds and affliction await you. 
It's a difficult thing to go knowing how sad it's going to make everybody when you go. Even Paul finds it difficult, doesn't he? He he turns around and starts begging them, could you please stop breaking my heart? But he obeys by faith what he knows he's supposed to do. Now, this is difficult. It's difficult because there are many, many things in life that are matters of conscience. There's many things that are matters of obedience. You must obey God, right? You must follow his commands. You must do what he says. Now here Paul is, and he's showing us what it looks like to obey by faith, even when other people disagree and think you should do something else. Are you supposed to do something else? Is Paul supposed to do something else? What's he doing? This is dangerous territory because what we do with something like this is we latch on to it in various ways and use it to justify ourselves in disobedience. We, we latch on to Paul's stubbornness, I'm going to Jerusalem. And we, we get a decision, we get something stuck in our craw, and we're like, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be like Paul. I'm going to do it no matter what everybody says. And sometimes we're using it to justify disobeying God's explicit command. We can't do that. You can't ever say, God wants me to do such and such, when the Bible says, don't do such and such. Right? There's no special revelation from God that says, you know, don't commit adultery, except you, you're allowed to. Other times, we will use something like this to be a good excuse to simply do what we want and to spiritualize it and call it faith. You can't call it faith when really all that's going on is you're just doing what you want. Seeking counsel is always wise and good. The Bible is clear on that. Paul has no shortage of counselors. You can't use this as justification for not seeking counsel in any decision. (laughs) Right? Does he get counsel? Oh yeah, he gets counsel. And everybody tells him, don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. And he goes anyway. How many times have I given counsel to somebody? And I know that everybody else who has given that person counsel has said, don't do it. Unanimous counsel. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. 
only for the person to go ahead and do it. Why? Why would you do that? And see, the thing is, most of the time, it's just because they want to. It has nothing to do with faith. It has nothing to do with conscience. It has nothing to do with obedience. It's just, I want to do it. And you can look into the future and you can see, here's what's coming. It doesn't take a prophet to know Take a sales job and spend six months out of the year away from your wife and you're going to commit adultery. You're going to fall into sexual sin. It's stupid. Don't do it. Don't take the job. Well, I want more money. Well, of course, they never say that. I think God is really calling me to this job. Well, is it possible? Yes. It is a matter of wisdom, isn't it? There's no command, don't take a sales job. (laughs) But boy, wisdom. So here's the thing. Why in the world is Paul going against all of the counsel, all of the begging, Why in the world is Paul convinced that he has to go to Jerusalem? Paul was convinced that this was necessary for the sake of the churches, for the sake of the glory of God, for the sake of the work of his calling, the work that he'd been given as an apostle. He knew this is what he had to do. Different men have different gifts, different judgments of what should happen and what you should do, and different callings. And ultimately, we must walk by faith even when others don't think it's wise. I've heard many stories of men doing brave things that seem very unwise to me. I don't know. I mean, you only hear the stories where it was brave and it turned out well, right? God used it. It was a miracle that people were saved. Whatever. You wonder how many, how many stories end with, and then he died. The end. I wonder, what would I do in that situation? Oh, there's some benefit to asking the question being prepared. But ultimately, many, many of these things are questions of conscience. Questions of wisdom, yes. But questions of conscience that are left to each of us individually. Probably the best example that I come back to over and over again is Whether you should flee persecution when it's coming to your city or whether you should stay and continue to testify. We see both in the Bible. Here we see Paul going towards it. While other people have fled Jerusalem because of the persecution, Paul is running towards it. We even see Jesus doing both of those things depending on the time of his ministry. Times he leaves and gets away so that 
They can't get him. And then, the fullness of time had come, he doesn't. And they arrest him. And they crucify him. Paul had faith. Faith that God could and would bring about good things through bad circumstances. Not through bad choices, not through his sin, although that is true that God can bring about marvelous things through the sinful actions of man. That's not what we're dealing with here. Bad circumstances, as in he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tied up, he's going to be arrested by the Jews and then handed to the Gentiles where he will remain tied up. Paul says, yeah, I know that's what's coming, but God is going to use it. Yeah, I know that's what's coming, but I have faith. This is what I need to do. And it doesn't matter that everybody else says no. It doesn't matter that everybody else thinks it's foolish. He goes. It takes real faith to do that, doesn't it? To, be a, to stand alone. The one person that stays in the city while all the other Christians flee takes real faith, doesn't it? You know what else takes faith? Leaving when there's one guy left and trusting that you're both acting by faith and God will use your actions and God will use his actions. You know what else is hard? Is letting the one man that's left stay when you love him. It's hard watching somebody walk into a painful situation. It's hard watching someone you love. You can see the suffering and the sorrows coming. And frankly, which of us has a life where there's no sorrow and suffering coming? You may not know what it is, but it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. I don't look forward to dying. We are going to face suffering. The people we love are going to face suffering. Can we watch them go through suffering? Can we watch them walk towards suffering knowing that it will be painful for them and that thus it will be painful to us because we love them as we saw at the beginning, right? Can we do that? Can we watch them? And can we say God's will be done? That's what the people ended up saying to, to Paul. And he says, stop. You're breaking my heart. Stop begging me to stay. Stop begging me not to go to Jerusalem. You're breaking my heart. And since he would not be persuaded, Luke writes, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Something we have to be able to say about our own life when we walk into suffering, the will of the Lord be done. What is that suffering? I don't know what it is in your life. Some of you, I know little parts of it or larger parts of it. Decisions that have to be made, torturous decisions 
I don't know what to do. Do it by faith, whatever you do. And trust that the will of the Lord will be done. The will of the Lord will be done. As hard as that is, I think it is probably harder much of the time for us to say that about other people whom we love. The will of the Lord be done. Whatever that will is. They knew it was serious for Paul to go into Jerusalem. How serious? Serious enough, right? But what's going to happen in the end? How will God use it? Will God bring about a mighty salvation? Will God bring about another miraculous recovery? What will God do? Well, the answer is yes, he will, and he did several more times, right? But ultimately, the answer was death. Death is the end. Paul's obedience, as with church history tells us the most, most of the rest of the apostles, their obedience led ultimately to death. Down through church history, this has happened over and over again. Family members begging, just lie. You know, just bend the truth a little bit. Don't die for no reason. Come with us. Leave with us. How many of them in the end, like the people loving the Apostle Paul, were able to say, the will of the Lord be done. God's will be done. Even if it means death. Even if it means suffering that I that will make me sick to my stomach to watch the one I love go through it. How could anything good come from such suffering? What good could there possibly be that would come out of letting Paul get arrested? The church needs him. You see how easy it is for us to believe the lies of Satan? That nothing good can come. That letting God's will be done is just a disaster. We know better than God, don't we? Oh, it's very easy for us to believe that. Really quick, right? We can go from, yeah, I'm doing this because it's going to be good to like you hit the first roadblock. Oh my goodness. I thought God was with me. I thought God's will was being done. I remember reading a book about uh, the work of a pastor and his wife, Kenton Barb Hughes, planting a church in California. This story strikes close to home for me, having planted two churches. Uh, the church didn't survive. There was no church plant. There was no church. It blew up, fell apart, the end. How many things in your life have you tried and seen blow up? How many things have you failed at? Or how many things have you seen your children try and fail at? Or be hurt by? We were up in Michigan this last week and a couple of the fathers, or a lot of kids, a couple of the fathers had left and a girl came in to the kitchen where I was talking with a couple of other people and she said, the boys are fighting in the other room. They're, take, they're, they're 
taking turns punching each other. And he said, uh, okay, it'll be all right. It doesn't look like it's all right, she says. My sister says, it's probably my boys that are causing the trouble here, you know. She says, is anybody upset? Yeah. Is it Zion? No. All right, I'll go take a look, I said. So I, I go in the other room, and it was my sister's other son. <laughs> Very upset about something that had happened in this game. I mean, you know, punching each other. Not that surprising, right? Whole room of boys standing in a circle watching this game. For those of you who are not boys, this is normal. And, uh, and so, I'm faced with a decision. I, I'm, I'm the parent. I'm the man. I'm the only father around. So I said to him, you guys, you're not allowed to hurt each other. If any of you goes to the hospital, I'm telling you, you'll regret it. And so they stopped, they started wrestling. And I left. And then one of them broke their arm. I mean, and his dad was gone in another state. And I'm left going, oh my goodness. I should have stopped him. And I'm thinking, oh man. I don't know. Should I have? I mean, clearly you heard me decide not to stop them, right? Broke his arm. Ended his baseball season. You know, on and on, all the consequences. Going to the ER, you know, then having to go to see some orthopedic when he gets home and recovery and money and all the consequences of broken arm. It's like, uh, I feel kind of responsible. Can there be any good that comes from a kid breaking his arm? There is. There can be. I made what seemed to be the best decision at the time. And now I have to walk by faith, say, God's will be done. There's a broken arm. It's not pleasant for anybody involved, including me. Right? Nobody likes that. God's will be done. What good could come from it? See, these are the things that I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself the moment that you have the, that pit in your stomach of sorrow, that pit in your stomach of, I just can't even bear to think about it. Can God's will be done? Can any good come from this? 
The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And sometimes it's to teach you to not be a fool. Other times it's to teach you to stop sinning. And other times, like the man born blind, it was not his sin or his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind. But it was so that God could be glorified. So that his power could be displayed. God is displayed. His holiness, his glory, his magnificence, his power, his might in our weakness. So when bad things happen, or when you see them coming down the pike, walk by faith and say it with me, God's will be done. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so easy for us to turn aside from believing that your will is good, that your plan is good. Father, when we see sorrow and suffering coming down the pike, we're so quick to want to run away from your will. Anybody's will but your will, Father. But along with Paul, along with the churches, Father, along with Jesus Christ himself, who in the garden prayed, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So, Father, we pray. When we suffer and when those we love suffer. Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what my will, but your will be done. Strengthen our faith, Father, to seek your will, no matter the consequences. Even if it means standing alone. Even if it means suffering even if it means watching those we love suffer. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.